0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's about 9.30 a.m. on April the 1st in California. Uh, Happy April Fool's Day to everybody. Seems like we're all locked in a perpetual April Fool's Day joke, which isn't so funny anymore. Yesterday, we had another long, all too long um, President Trump uh, press conference, uh, which was a combination of surrealism and reality television. And I'm quoting something from my guest on the show today who has a new book called Hiding in Plain Sight, uh, written by Sarah Kenzior. She writes, uh, she's not writing about the coronavirus crisis, but she's writing about something, I think, in some ways, quite similar She says, we are trapped in a reality television autocrat's funhouse mirror, a blurred continuum of shock and sorrow that exhausts our capacity for clarity of thought. Uh, Sarah Kensier, uh, happy uh, April Fool's Day.
1: Oh, happy April Fool's Day to you, too.
0: So, uh, Sarah, we were chatting uh, before we started recording this. Your book is about to come out. It's an excellent book, really prescient in many ways, even if it doesn't mention the coronavirus crisis. Um, this this uh, vision you have of all of us being trapped in a in a in a reality television autocrat's funhouse mirror uh, is that the way we should be thinking about. Uh, history and, and and society in the age of the coronavirus.
1: Uh, it's certainly the way we should be thinking about it in terms of media in the age of Trump, um, by which I mean both. Mainstream media, where we have our daily propaganda hour, um, and also social and digital media, which he's always used as a one-way forum, uh, tweeting out at people, forcing reporters to decipher his words. At this point, you know, public health crisis relies on our ability, uh, you know, to decipher hidden meanings in a tweet, Uh, and he does that. To abuse power, that kind of one-sided communication is always how he's abused power. Um, it's always how he's manipulated the public and especially manipulated the media, and that continues now. Um, that said, you know, I urge people to rely on each other to break through that facade, uh, to continue to, tru- to to search for truth regardless um, of the circumstances. And God knows we have enough uh, time on our hands now to do that.
0: So you write uh, about Trump, and, and your book is about. Donald Trump um, and and uh, as as an individual and also as a concept, a historical concept, um, you write about him as, an, and I like this word, as a, a culmination. Your book is a, a contemporary history of America written uh, over about the last 20 or 25 years. Why is Trump a culmination, Sarah?
1: Oh, for many reasons, but... Basically, Trump's rise coincided with the breakdown of social and political and especially economic norms in the United States, uh, You know, starting about in the mid-70s with the rise of income inequality, continuing through uh, the Reagan 80s and its extremism. But most of all, um, he's the culmination of corruption, of unchecked corruption, of elite criminal impunity. And that is why you see literally the same cast of characters recurring through all these great American crises, whether Watergate, Iran-Contra, the war in Iraq, the 2008 financial crisis. You see Bill Barr, Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, John Bolton, all of these figures who were either involved in the Trump campaign or involved in the administration, or are his cover-up guys, Now, and so Trump, for all of these different people, whether they're kleptocrats or theocrats or white supremacists, he is a vehicle to a larger goal. I don't think he's some sort of geopolitical mastermind. I think he's a very useful person who is extremely skilled at spin PR and manipulating the media. I think his backers knew that, and they have used that uh, to carry out a lot of, you know, very uh, disgusting transnational, transnational criminal operations over a number of years, and have now assumed control of the executive branch as well.
0: You, and I'm quoting you again from the beginning of the book, you say, uh, the Trump administration is like a reality show featuring villains from every major political scandal of the last 40 years, Watergate, Iran-Contra, 9-11, the Iraq war, the 2008 financial collapse in recurring roles and revivals. Um, Why is that, I wouldn't necessarily say attractive, but why is that so successful? Uh, At what point is the world itself becoming a reality television show?
1: That's a great question. Uh, That's a question I wish people had dealt with in a more serious manner over the last 20 years, Um, you know, through the through the rise of Reality TV itself, um, you know, and kind of the the idea of truth versus truthiness, which we saw throughout the rock the Iraq war uh, through the pronouncements of people like Carl Rove, who came out and said, You know we create reality, there is no objective reality, you know we create history, and you know you you will just do um, you know what we say you're going to do. I have the direct quote. In the book, um, I think it created that mentality. And then the internet heightened it. You know, I think, as you know well, um, the internet was initially heralded as something that could break through uh, mainstream media, break through the entertainment industry, bring people closer together, allow for a more um, authentic form of self-expression. I think over time it became hijacked, uh, both by corporations and democratic governments, but especially by authoritarian states uh, and non-state actors who are incredibly skilled at propaganda. Um, And this all coincided with huge social shifts like the 2008 financial collapse. So just as people were trying to reconfigure their ideas of social trusts, of institutions that can be dependent on, uh, they were manipulated um, in a million different ways and also dealing with very fast moving technological changes. And so it's a perfect storm. Um, It's the storm that gave birth to the revivals of all of these uh, horrible actors that have surrounded Trump. We had brief moments uh, of accountability over the last few years um, with the flailing molar probe and so forth, uh, eventually those petered out. And I suspect that with the coronavirus delaying any kind of hearing or uh, formal means of accountability, they will continue to get away with it.
0: Some people listening to this would, I think, assume that you are just another liberal elite from California or New York or Washington, D.C. or Boston, but you're not. You're Based in St. Louis, Missouri. And you mm-hmm. a, and the book itself is very much rooted in, in Missouri as a as a kind of metaphor for, for what's gone wrong. What what is the view of all this from Missouri? So Yeah,
1: I mean I write about Missouri a lot. Uh, Missouri historically in the United States, um Sorry, I cut out for a second. Missouri historically in the United States has been called the bellwether state um, in part because of the ability of its citizens to predict elections, but also because it was emblematic of uh, social and cultural trends. Things would hit Missouri before they hit the rest of the U.S. And what's happened in the last 20 years or so is that decline and corruption hit Missouri uh, before it hit the U.S., The kind of corruption that we're seeing through dark money, um, through these transnational operations, through the blurring of white collar crime and organized crime, we saw that early in Missouri. We saw poverty early in Missouri. And we also saw activism early in Missouri, whether it was conservative activists like the Tea Party or the Ferguson movement, um, you know, which spawned Black Lives Matter or various kind of, um, you know, just general social movements trying to cure uh, broader ills. They tended to come from places like St. Louis. And I think some of that is, you know, we're a somewhat liberal city uh, in a pretty conservative state. You really have uh, all sides kind of represented here. Everybody's hustling. Everybody's struggling. Uh, So it is a different perspective. Um, And I do think I have a different perspective than other authors, uh, you know, in documenting the Trump administration, because I'm completely outside the regular D.C., you know, New York, L.A. media, uh, which has become its own thing over the last 10 years. It wasn't always so conglomerated in a few cities. The media used to be much more spread out. But of course, as you know, it's been gutted nationwide.
0: Yeah, I like your, your metaphor, well, it's not yours, but you borrow it of Missouri as the cave state. It is, again, the cave state, lots of caves in Missouri, which you've explored. But you say, growing up or living in Missouri, you need to learn to see in the dark, which is, of course, an old Platonic trope as well. How have you learned to see in the dark?
1: Oh, well, I mean, I've spent my life studying... Terrible things like when my children ask what I do, that's what I tell them, Um, you know, before I went back into journalism I studied authoritarian states, uh, dictatorships, particularly in the former Soviet Union, uh, I covered corruption, I covered torture and war and propaganda. Um, so me going and venturing into the caves of Missouri, that's what I do for, for relaxation. Um, and, you know, I, I, I describe in the book, the difficulties that I've encountered in my own life, um, dealing with the collapse of institutions in the U.S. um, with things like the aftermath of 9-11, the 2008 financial collapse. You know, I'm a regular person. I'm no more immune uh, from these terrible social shifts than anybody. Um, So I guess, you know, there is a sense of, hyper-awareness and certainly a sense that the worst can happen and it's good to be prepared and it's good to open up your mind and your imagination uh, to the worst of what people may do in the hope that you can maybe prevent them from doing it. Um, I think that there's been too much blowback against the idea of being a quote alarmist when in reality a lot of us are just sounding the alarm. You know, we're doing historical research. We're looking at primary sources and we're trying to tell the world, hey, you know, there's a deeper story here. And yes, it's a horrifically disturbing story. And yes, it suggests that we have a lot less control over our lives and over our government and, you know, over all the sorts of things that, you know, as Americans, we've been taught, um, you know, will, will persevere no matter what, than we thought we did. But in order to solve a problem, you need to confront it. Uh, and when you're trying to solve the problem of Trump and his criminal cohort, you need to delve into a very dark place.
0: Uh, And and, and in that dark place, you argue in the book that uh, you found that uh, America isn't much different from the post-Soviet states that you you studied in another life, your experience, for example, in Uzbekistan. Is America really just another, in many ways, post-Soviet kleptocracy?
1: Well, it's certainly what the Trump administration is trying to create. They are trying to create a country very similar to uh, post-Soviet kleptocracies, more like Azerbaijan um, or Russia, I would say, than Uzbekistan, uh, you know, which is just fully authoritarian. Um, you know, we, of course, have a different tradition. We have you know, centuries of democracy, never perfect democracy. Um, you know, we've always had state-sanctioned autocracy against certain populations, against Black Americans, against Native Americans, against Japanese Americans during World War II, and so forth. So it's not like we were ever some sort of paradise. But I do think there's a great difference in expectation. We expect to have freedom of speech. We expect to have freedom of assembly. We expect expect to have, to some degree, a free market. Um, although, you know, the capitalist dream i think people realize has been corroded um you know it's a plutocracy it's not that different in many respects from a russian uh oligarchy especially the role of money in politics but you know when i when i've talked to people in uh former soviet central asian countries that are Authoritarian states, you know, they are still, even to this day, envious of our freedoms. Uh, They're not envious of our president. They certainly realize our own freedoms are on the line. Uh, They've often wondered, you know, why why we don't cherish them more. Um, But no, we're we're headed in that direction. I feel like the world as a whole is. You see this with Hungary, with Turkey, um, you know, with the UK, with so many countries that have taken a hard right-wing turn while being overrun uh, by corruption. Um, and this sort of blend of white collar and organized crime, this unfortunately is a global event. And if anything, I think we finally have realized or folks have finally realized that American exceptionalism is an illusion. And it's a dangerous one because if you believe in it, if you just assume things will work out on their own uh, because it's America, because we're special, because we're different, they will work out in the most horrific of ways. And it's up to us as citizens and it's up to our own representatives to fight for these freedoms and not take them for granted. And I do hope people have learned that by now.
0: Let's go back to this, this idea of, of Donald Trump as, as, as a culmination. Is uh, the coronavirus crisis, is that a kind of culmination of a culmination? Is this the, the Hegelian world spirit all coming together in one brutal, dark moment?
1: it feels like it um and i think above all you know we have to recognize this is a profoundly human crisis this is not you know just uh an abstract culmination there are people dying There are lives on the line and there's a government that could prevent that or at least help prevent that by supplying necessary equipment um you know to the afflicted and by helping medical professionals so above all i have a you know a pragmatic approach to that, but yes, um, you know what, what the coronavirus has done in terms of daily living is strip away uh, the tools that Americans could be using or were using to oppose this administration. Whether that's uh, you know gathering together in public, whether it's hearings for accountability, um, I'm already seeing shutdowns of media. One of the local papers in my area in St. Louis shut down within a week of the coronavirus. The economic toll is enormous. Uh, you know, you have a population now that is helpless, that is panicked, that can't physically reach out to each other because touch at this point can literally kill. And I can't imagine a more ideal situation. For this administration, which truly doesn't care if people live or die, um, you know, you, we've seen this over the years. Their reaction to veterans, to the widows of slain soldiers, to the victims of natural disasters like Hurricane Maria, the the apathy that this administration displays towards suffering and even, you know, kind of luxuriating in that suffering was to be expected, uh, and it's frightening. I wish that those in government who do care. About this crisis, and not surely in terms of the stock market, we do more to protect ordinary citizens. Um, that said, though, you know this is unprecedented for our era. The last time we had a pandemic like this, it was 100 years ago. Um, you know, we've had 100 years of technological innovation and population growth since then, so it's going to play out much more differently. And you know, it's, it's truly a frightening situation.
0: So. Uh, To to re-quote you, we're we're trapped in this reality television autocrats funhouse mirror. How do we get out of it? Do we just need to switch off our television, stop looking at these surreal press conferences? Might we need to switch off the internet? Do we just go back to reading books? or or uh, No, it's it's very hard. And, and, And my question, let me perhaps slightly rephrase it me one concrete thing that people can begin to do here because it's all too easy to say well we need to fight we need to challenge but 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 we need concrete steps
1: people need to pursue the truth and yes i do think people should be picking up books people need to learn history they've needed to relearn history relearn civics, relearn, you know, world history the whole time. I think when people do that, they recognize parallels to the past in a way uh, that they don't when somebody is just dogmatically preaching at them. You know, I think everybody who has looked at how autocracies form, how rights are eroded, has had, you know, somewhat of an advantage in in predicting the role of this administration. Um, you know, it's a tough thing to tell an average citizen what to do now because I think that most folks are just fighting for basic survival. They're they're trying to pay their bills. They're trying not to get sick. They're trying to take care of their family members. And I think, you know, if that's what you're doing, then that is that is perfectly fine. If you're staying home and doing your part and not spreading this, then you're doing a great thing, um, there are others though you know with great power comes great responsibility. The media needs to stop airing those press conferences live because people are taking the advice that Trump gives, and it is literally killing them. You know We already have a victim of somebody who took the uh, the drugs that Trump recommended and died. Um, He now does not have his rallies. He cannot do his typical uh, demagogue shtick. And so he has embraced the press conferences that he, you know, once tried to avoid as a way of Putting on this endless Trump reality show, and that show needs to be canceled. They should simply tape the proceedings. If something relevant happens, then air it. If medical professionals are giving advice, then air that too. Give the public the information that they need uh, to survive and to make decisions. But once again, you know, everything is uh, revolving around him and his sadistic, narcissistic world. Uh, and that's been a problem the whole time. Uh, it's disempowering, but it's also incredibly dangerous.
0: Finally, uh, Sarah, you said we need to go back to books. Um, we need to learn from the past. People are at home. Uh, they don't have much to do all day except perhaps watch the Autocrats uh, reality television show. Uh, what One book that they might pick up, an easy book that will offer a way out of this cave that will will light up our darkness or will help to light up our darkness?
1: Oh, gosh, that's a, <laughs> there's so many. Um, Timothy Snyder is a historian who, right after Trump's election, uh, wrote a book, I think it's called On Tyranny, that uh, you know, gives sort of an um, overview of how autocracies form and what kind of things to look out for. I think for, for people who are new to this topic, that's useful. I also, of course, recommend my own books.
0: But what's nice about the Schneider book is it's very short. I think it's about 120 yes. pages. Yes, so. it's
1: short. It's digestible. It's not going to necessarily overwhelm you. And I think it opens up uh, your worldview, you know, to different books and to explore what you want from there.
0: You've been listening to Keynote hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.